0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. I'm reading the Bible. I'm Christina, if I haven't met you, so please come say hello. Um, We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing.
1: Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Stuart, and I'm normally up here doing the prayers, but today I'm I'm here doing the sermon. And uh, last, uh, I'm actually here a week earlier, because um, due to a family commitment, we'll be away next week, so we're preaching this chapter this week, Um, so we're skipping ahead slightly in our series. Um, So next week we'll actually preach on the last half of Chapter 4. But here we are in the first half of Chapter 5 this week. So I'll just begin by um, a short uh, opening prayer for us. Thank you, Father, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark regarding who you are, and who we are. I pray that you would speak to us today. You know us intimately and what we each need to hear. Thank you that you are wise enough and are enough to reach us for Jesus' sake. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I can remember during the later years of primary school when I was off sick, I was at home. I was an only child, and there I was at home by myself. And when I was at home, I'd flick on the TV, uh, and there was only four channels back then, um, no streaming services. And on one channel, there was this show called Days of Our Lives. This was the 80s. um, But what I remember most about that show was the very start. Right at the start, the camera would be focused right in on an hourglass, with sand running down from the top to the bottom. And there was this slow, haunting music that was set to the same beat as a clock ticking. And the camera would go even closer. And we'd and go on for a minute, and then this, this man would come on, and a deep American accent would say, like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. And then there was this rapid sort of violin music that would sort of hypnotise people into watching the show. And uh, I think it worked. Um, But you know, the show, of course, was a daytime soap opera. But and I was a bit spooked by this, by the introduction. Even at that young age, I thought it was all a bit scary. But it worked, of course. People watched, and the show ran for years and years. But as boring and as tacky as Days of Our Lives might have been, the opening scene did raise some questions in my mind about time. At this stage, I was about eleven or twelve years old, and I was an only child because my father had died when I was really young. So often I would wonder, as time went on, would my mother ever remarry? And would I get a new dad? I also had half-siblings that lived overseas, and I only ever saw them once every four or five years. And I would often wonder how long it would be before I would see them again. Now, this is not a sob story about me, but as an only child, you do tend to have more time to yourself, and your mind can wander. And I did have a level of anxiety about time. This passage in the first half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 also raises big questions about time. In verse 1, the Thessalonians had questions about what is to come, about time and dates. But if we think about it, the concept of time is never far from our minds. We all have questions about time. What time is that appointment tomorrow? How long will the sermon go for? How long before dinner? How many more days before that next big exam? How many days before I give birth? How many more days do I have to keep suffering? How long am I going before I'm promoted at work? How long before the situation I'm going through improves? A bigger question about time for all Christians, though, is when is Jesus coming back? For that is the question that the Thessalonians had on their mind here at the start of chapter 5. And if we're honest, that's a question that we all ask as well. After 2,000 years of Jesus not coming back, it can sometimes be a bit easy to start having doubts or confusion about this. So, if we consider this big question about the timing of Jesus' second coming, we're going to see Paul's first, firstly corrects their wrong questions about it. Then Paul points to the right solutions with regards to Jesus' return. And finally, Paul speaks about the foundations of their hope that Jesus will return. But before we really get begin to look at the chapter, we need to do a bit of a recap of where we are and who Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to new converts to Christ in Thessalonica. At the time of Paul, Thessalonica was the chief city of Macedonia. Even today, Thessaloniki is the second largest city in Greece. Paul had been prevented from visiting them, so he had sent Timothy to see how the new believers were doing. And he wrote this letter from Corinth, and it was sent back to the church after the return of Timothy to Paul and Silas. We have seen so far in our series that this letter is tied together by the themes of faith, hope and love. Paul's thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus. He's encouraged by the love for all of God's people, and now in this passage, he seeks to address some of their anxieties and questions their hope of Jesus' second coming. So firstly, in verses 1 to 3, the Thessalonians are asking the wrong questions about when Jesus will return. But before we, ask these, we look at these verses, we have to remember that 1 Thessalonians is thought to be the very earliest New Testament writing. They were a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile converts So before receiving this letter, the only Bible I had access to was what we now call the Old Testament, which of course was Paul's Bible as well. But now they are Christians, they would have had lots of questions. So in the first section we read in verses 1 to 3 again, Now brothers and sisters, about time and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Here Paul's initial focus is on one particular day, a day he refers to as the day of the Lord. The words the day or this day are repeated in verses 2, 4, 5 and 8. So the concept of the day of the Lord is a strong theme here. In chapter 4, which Sam will preach on next week, Paul says that the Day of the Lord includes trumpet sounds, Jesus coming on a cloud and his people being gathered up to meet him in the air. Now I'll let Sam unpack that next week, but all the Thessalonians had previously known about the Day of the Lord was what they could understand from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Day of the Lord was a term used to describe final judgment. Maybe they'd known Amos, chapter 5. Perhaps you should go home and read verses 18 to 20. Amos was a prophet who mostly wrote about visions of divine judgment, idolatry and abuse of the poor. Israel had thought the day of the Lord was a day of national vindication, a time in which God himself would come down as a divine warrior in judgment against the enemies of Israel. Amos, however, reverses this. He says, when the day of the Lord comes, God will come as a divine warrior, but bringing judgment against his own people for their sin. Amos says it'll be like a man running from a lion only to meet a bear, and a snake bites him at home with no darkness or no light at all. One bad thing after another in total darkness. That sounds a bit more scary to me. This was the day of the Lord to them. But maybe also they'd they'd known Isaiah chapter 13. There, Isaiah says that the day of the Lord will come like destruction. Every heart will melt with fear. There will be terror, pain and anguish, like a woman in labour. It will be a cruel day with wrath and anger. There will be no light from the stars, moon or sun, and the earth will shake. Perhaps that's something that happened in Morocco last week. I saw a report which said that near the epicentre up in the Atlas Mountains that the earth actually shook upwards and then the houses all fell down and crushed everything. This is just a devastating foretaste of what Isaiah says the day of the Lord will be like. But the great thing is that the day of the Lord will not be scary or devastating or spooky for those who believe in Jesus. For we who believe in Jesus, the day of the Lord will be a moment not of devastating judgement, but of purifying judgment, purifying us of every impurity so that we can finally see Jesus for who he really is in all his glory and be with him and his people forever. That's what the day of the Lord will mean for the Thessalonians that Paul is writing to. They are believers in Jesus who have started their Christian life really well. And clearly they had been taught verbally about the day of the Lord because Paul says he does not need to write about such things but there were some deficiencies in their thinking. They were thinking they could predict the exact timing of the day of the Lord. But Paul wants to correct their thinking on this. He points out, trying to know the specific date is the wrong solution. Unlike the Thessalonians, who had no other New Testament books to refer to, we can see in Mark chapter 13 and Acts chapter 1 that not even Jesus knows the timing of his own return. Only God the Father does. And Paul gives two illustrations of Jesus' sudden or unexpected coming. The first is it would be like a thief in the night. Thieves don't normally send letters and say they're coming. They don't normally ring your doorbell and say, here I am, can I come in? They do their thing kind of unannounced, with no warning. Paul also likens the coming of the day of the Lord to labour pains. Now, my wife's had three pregnancies, one of which was with twins, which means it was a high-risk pregnancy. Now, a lot of twins are born prematurely and you have a lot of questions go through your mind about the whole risks of premature birth. How early can babies be born and still be okay? How many weeks is too premature? In all the consultations that we had, I can still remember one of the doctors saying that even with all the advances in pregnancy screening over the years, the onset of labour can still not be predicted. They just cannot predict when exactly it will happen, but they know it will. Both of these illustrations teach us that Jesus' second coming will be sudden. But there is an obvious difference that even though robbery and labour can happen suddenly, robbery is usually unexpected, whereas labour pains are expected. But putting these two illustrations together, we can see that Jesus' coming will certainly be sudden and in the moment, it will be unexpected. But for Christians, there's also a sense in which it it is expected or inevitable like the labour pains at the end of a pregnancy. So Paul corrects their wrong questions about Jesus' second coming. They thought they could predict predict the timing. But Paul says that Christ is going to come suddenly, unexpectedly and unavoidably. So how can we be ready? That's what Paul goes on to in verses 4 to 7 when he teaches about what I've called the right solutions concerning Christ's return. Here he says, But you, O brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Paul says here that being surprised when Jesus comes won't apply to Christians that are spiritually awake or alert. Yes, Christ's coming will be sudden and unannounced and the Thessalonians can't do anything about that. But as believers in Jesus, they can live in a way that shows that they expect his coming and are ready for his coming. Paul says they can be ready for Christ's return by living out who they are, living as children of the light, and contrasts that with darkness. For the Jewish converts in Thessalonica, this image of light and darkness might have reminded them of passages like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, which says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is a prophecy about a messianic dawn which points to Jesus and his salvation being a light for the Gentiles we can see that Peter also uses this imagery of light and darkness in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. With Christ's coming, the light of a new age is breaking into the darkness of this world. Paul is saying that when you become a believer in Jesus, it's like you no longer belong primarily to this age, which is characterised by sin and darkness and death. You belong primarily to the new age that has dawned in Christ, the age which is characterised by holiness and light and life, that will come fully and finally when Christ comes on the day of the Lord. So as believers in Jesus, we are now children of the light, spiritually alert and awake to the new age that has dawned in Christ. Paul calls the Thessalonians to live as children of light, not like those who remain in spiritual darkness or sleepiness, because Jesus is now their reigning king. So they are not to do what other people do at night under the cover of darkness, but must be alert and ready for the Lord to to return, like soldiers on watch. They ought to be awake to God, not oblivious to God, as if their faculties were dimmed or even obliterated. But still, we might have doubts about this hope that we have of Christ's return. So how do we live as we wait until Jesus comes back? So in verses 8 to 11, Paul speaks about how we should live and wait for our certain hope of Jesus' return when he says... Here Paul starts to explain how we should live as we wait for Jesus to come back. And again we see he repeats the three aspects of Christian life. Faith, love and hope. First Paul calls us to put on faith and love as a breastplate. And Paul calls us to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Again he is drawing from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 59 Isaiah prophesies that God will arm himself with righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head as he does battle against evil. Paul was encouraging faithful Christians to do the same in a figurative sense. And how we get this armour is through the Holy Spirit who has brought us to faith in Jesus. That's how we can be confident that we'll have the protection that we need as we engage in the spiritual battle in this world. The world seems so much more powerful at times. It seems it will overwhelm believers and the church. Truth is being constantly contested at every point in our culture. But we can be confident because through faith in Jesus, God has provided us with the protection that we need. And we can be confident in the end, we will be victorious. Because as Paul says in verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus. A Christian believes that God has put his anger and wrath into Jesus on the cross. By trusting in that, we become a child of God and children of the light. At his his second coming, though, Christ will establish and execute justice on the world. On this day, believers can be confident that we will receive salvation and life, not death and judgment. But how can we know that for sure? I mean, the Thessalonians had received this letter less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and yet they were still anxious about when he was going to come back. Here we are more than 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't come back. So if we're honest, many of us, it might be hard to actually fully embrace the reality of his second coming. But in verse 10, Paul points us again back to the basic tenets of our faith as Christians. Paul says that Jesus died so that we may live. Jesus' death and our life are connected. We only have the hope of eternal life with Jesus and his people because Jesus died the death that we deserved. And Paul says we need to remember that Christ who is coming is the same Christ who has died and rose again. Remembering these truths is what will guard us against spiritual sleepiness and give us confidence about our hope as Christians. Paul says that whether Christians are awake or asleep, we may live together with Christ. What Paul means here is is that Christians that are alive at the time of Christ's return will have no advantage over those believers who have already died. Both groups will equally receive the fullness of salvation and life. We need to remember that everything Jesus said about his death and resurrection actually happened in history. Jesus said himself that he would suffer many things, be rejected, be killed and after three days be raised. The way his death transpired and his resurrection proves that Jesus' words can be trusted. Like the disciples we may be tempted to think surely Jesus couldn't be raised from the dead but he was raised from the dead. Likewise we might be tempted to think surely he can't be true that he's going to come back to return one day but we can believe that because just as Jesus predicted his death and resurrection and they happened, so also in Acts chapter 1, God promises through his angelic beings that one day Jesus will return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So what we as believers need to do is hold three truths together. Jesus' death, his resurrection and his second coming. I think in today's world, many believers have no problem with, chapters, with numbers one and two, but part three can be a bit harder. But we have to remember that God made promises about all three. And it's all three we have to encourage each other in when we are struggle with believing that Jesus will come back. We can't allow the collective struggles and challenges we have Overshadow the promises of God. Because all of our struggles will be temporary, and we do not need to live in fear. Finally, in verse 11, we have, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Paul is saying that encouragement and building each other up is the responsibility of everyone. He is not directing this to only a few but the whole church God did not leave the Thessalonians in the hands of elite professional pastors or carers but they did need someone to say keep going being an encouraging church is not someone else's job Paul is writing to the individuals in the church but you might think to yourself I don't know how to, know how to encourage somebody I'm not sure what to say I'm scared I'll say the wrong thing I'm not good at talking or asking personal questions. Isn't that a bit sus these days? Can't I just send a text? I mean, all that might be true at one level. And the internet says that since the pandemic, communication skills have been blunted. I mean, even businesses are struggling with this because many in professional services have lost so many touch points with clients. I mean, everything is now is via Zoom or email, texting, digital signing or document uploads. Actually talking to people is now seen as difficult or you know, getting in the way of the work. So you're not alone in thinking it's hard about communicating. But even if you don't know what to say in a situation, you still can simply listen to someone. Simply listening and saying that you'll pray for someone is encouraging. Even doing that via text is encouraging. As you know, I, I do the prayers here at church... Here uh, and occasionally, um, Rosie Leslie sends us a WhatsApp message to the group thanking us for what we do. That is encouraging. You can stack chairs, you can vacuum, you can wash dishes, the old fashioned works of service. Even those things are encouraging as it helps the overall effort of doing church. I know one of the best ways someone can encourage me and my family is to genuinely take an interest, ask a question of inquiry. Remember the conversation from last time and circle back on it next time you see it somewhere. So let us encourage one another and build one another up with these three foundational truths that we believe as Christians as we live our lives together and wait for Christ to return. In closing, I'm just going to close with something about when I first became a Christian, it was in a church plant. Not this one, but another one. And after I'd been there a couple of years, the founding pastor decided to leave and return back to where he came from. Now, when a church loses its founding pastor, it can be a great grief. And many who were new Christians at that time had lost their first pastor. And the church did go through a real period of loss and grief. And I remember at the time, the former pastor used to write emails back to people he knew in the church to give us updates as to how he was going because initially he was struggling to find a new direction and at the end of those emails he would sign off with the words waiting for the day. Now you might think that's a bit trite or a bit typical of what a minister might say but I think he knew the struggle and the grief of what people were going through. So I think, um, yeah, I think you knew the struggle of people, what people were going through, and uh, it was really encouraging to have those words back to us. Oh, just, sorry, right, I've just um, lost one of my pages. I think I've just found it. Thank you, thankfully. Thank you. Um, So all we did in those few words was was point us back to the promises of God. Here in this passage, the promise is that we will live with him forever. Our lives are not a soap opera. They can be joyful, but all of us have challenges and anxieties. The days are passing fast and we all need encouragement. And the best encouragement is to remind one another of these central truths. Jesus died so that we might live and we have the certain hope that when he returns, we will live with him and his people forever, where sin and de- death and sickness will be no more. I'm just going to finish with a short prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that we see the promise of people living with you forever. And thank you that we see Paul's pastoral care for the Thessalonians. May we apply it to our lives for Jesus' sake and for his glory and in his name we pray. Amen.